Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, the host of this podcast, and I have the wonderful opportunity to be here with Abraham DeWeese. He's a cool hip cat. By day, he helps K-12 educators learn how to use Microsoft products to solve problems in the classroom via the Learn Educator Center, Educator Center Overview, the Microsoft Learn Educator Center, and Microsoft Docs. And by night, he is a sports podcast presenter for the Seattle Sports Union. Seattle Sports Union, united in support of Seattle sports. Abraham has a couple decades of technical communications and project management under his hat, but he gets a perverse thrill out of helping others with his personal projects, including helping friends launch a psychic radio program, a photography studio, a web app for bars, and he even gave a slight push to get this podcast started. Welcome my cohort and guest today, Abraham DeWeese. Hey, what's up, Keith? How's it going? Going good. Well, we know that you authored that bio because it gave me some opportunity to, <laughs> to throw my voice a little bit and you even somewhat minimized your role in getting this podcast started. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I'm just welcoming you. So glad to have you on today. It's great to see you back in America. And I know you'll get set back up in your home state of Louisiana pretty soon. Yep. So as Abraham is mentioning, I'll be traveling back to the United States by the time this hits the air. And so I'll be going back home and I'm excited for it. It's been a wonderful opportunity to be here in Mexico and just love the people, love the learning from them, but I'm excited to get back. And Abraham is also a cohort member of my cohort for our doctor of education program at the University of Miami and where this the idea for this podcast got its start. And I remember very vividly when I was talking about what I could do for a project, someone else mentioned do a podcast. I don't remember who said it, but then I said, I'm not doing a podcast. That's a ridiculous idea. That's way too hard. It's the neighbor was quick to say, it's not that hard. I'll, and I'll help you through it. And he's been great support and helping me through it. And I've noticed that about you, Abraham, in our cohort, uh, just watching you since we got to know each other and became friends and now Facebook friends. And I see a bigger part of your life. You just seem to have this knack to reach out to support people and to help people. And I wonder, have you always been like that? Did you develop that over time? Tell me a little yeah. bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I like in the introduction that I wrote at a bar the other night, uh, I do get a perverse thrill out of helping people. And there's a, I would say it's three-pronged. I haven't really thought about this until you just asked this. I think there's a three-pronged approach to this where one, it's some sort of dopamine rush that I get, you know, in helping someone get to the next level of where they want to be. There's that chemical, that chemical feeling that this show is called All That Might Be Edified. This that dopamine rush is all that must be justified. And that's in helping out other people. Number two, I actually find as a kinesthetic learner, I find I learn things as I'm helping other people. So for example, when you were setting up this podcast, I actually learned more things about podcasts that I, you know, I, I learned where the holes in my own game were, you know, I'm telling you to, to go do this. And then I realized, Oh, I don't even have that on my show, you know, get better lighting. Oh shoot. You know, maybe I need better lighting, you know, myself that kind of thing. And then the third thing, it's just, it's just a matter of what's that phrase, you know, paying it forward, right? I come from a background where there's a lot of talk about karmatic uh, response, you know, that, that somewhere someone's helped me, I need to help someone else when that happens. And, you know, whether, I don't want to get too spiritual into this, that was for a different podcast or a different broadcast I was on, <laughs> a psychic one, but um, just some of the things I learned even in my life, from other people, I just feel like there is value in making, as far as making this world a better place in sharing that on, moving that on, 
contributing that along for, I didn't set up this podcast on my own, the Seattle sports union. I had influences as well. Um, you know, people who gave me little hints and tips, you know, on how to, how to have a better microphone, get, go get yourself better lighting, go get a mixer when you, you know, uh, uh, you know, correct myself when I start saying uh, a lot, that kind of thing that comes from other people and that comes from this community around me. We each have a community, right? You have a community, Keith. I have a community and they all intersect like a Venn, Venn diagram. This whole world does, unless there's some hermit up on top of a mountain, you have to connect with other people. And we are a social creature, human beings, and we benefit off of, of other people. Yeah. Wonderful thoughts. Just Love it. Some great things. I love that you started with the chemical response. There's great research that shows that we benefit physiologically from helping others. So way to recognize that as part of it. I don't know that we naturally go to that as a motivation, but it really is a strong motivation. And as you were talking, I remembered some research that I did in my master's on organizational leadership from Gonzaga about building a community in a multicultural environment. And I just have become obsessed with it since I started doing research on it. And one of the things I learned is that in the United States culture, we have a tendency to shy away from including spiritual culture into our discussion when we're trying to build that community because we're afraid to offend people. We don't want to have the hard discussions about beliefs. And so I love that you referenced some of your karma-based influence as well. And even though you're hesitant to talk about spiritual, I think that as we look at community, as we look at servant leadership and how we really make those Venn diagrams intersect more often or make the most of those intersections, if you will, we have to embrace people for who they are and their backgrounds and whatever that entails, even when they're different than us or they're not as well understood. And sometimes we find that we learn more by doing that, or we become more open-minded and have our perspectives broadened. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I find that the reason why I do shy away from talking about spirituality, I don't think anybody has the one answer. And I think our journey through this life, you, you should try to find some answers knowing full well that uh, you'll, you'll never get it until this, this is done and you start over again, or you go to the next, uh, next level up. I, you know, it, it's, I think that's kind of why people shy away from it because I have that view, but somebody else may have a completely different view. And I don't think one's right or wrong. I think it's what your personal grip on this reality is. And that's, you can, like I said, you know, do something that is meaningful for yourself. For me, it's helping others. Then, you know, I'm one challenge to myself to learn new things too. I'm getting that uh, chemical reaction. And three, I'm building, you know, uh, we, we learned in school about scaffolding knowledge. I'm scaffolding my own spirituality, you know, building upon things that I've done in the past. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's interesting. I think you modeled something in your answer there that is very pertinent to servant leadership, and that's that we don't have all the answers. And so too often we we come from a place of questioning in an organizational role to see if someone really knows what they're talking about or to maybe set someone up to fail. We're not always asking questions from a, a standpoint of trying to obtain knowledge or gain understanding about a person. And I think when we do that, when we ask questions out of maybe ill content or you know a maligned purpose, trying to understand or sabotage or even you know catch someone in a lie, if you will, with good intentions, I think sometimes when we come from that standpoint, we lose an opportunity to learn what 
actually helps a person tick or what some of their background influences are. And, and unfortunately, that can create a negative chasm in our organizations. And so I think going forward, recognizing that our backgrounds are part of us, but that they might not be the answer at the same token is a good way to kind of move forward to embrace and learn from the people around us. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about something. This, this show is all about servant leadership. And it, can I change the topic just for a second? Absolutely. What drives humans towards hierarchical sense of leadership, a top-down approach? Why have we, you and I are, I'm a little bit older than you, but we're in the same age bracket. There is a, there was a time where big blue corporations operated, you know, you just do what the boss says, and then your boss does what their boss says, and their boss does what their boss says. And my experience with servant leadership is a new thing. And it seems like it's a flip of the pyramid. It's no longer a top-down approach, but it's recognizing that the lowest levels have value. What's, what changed? And why do humans, what, you know, why did humans want, maybe they didn't want, why did humans gravitate towards strict top-down hierarchy before this new wave of servant leadership came along? Yeah, that's a great question. Questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's you no, know, it's it's fine. I, if I miss one of them, and I think we could talk a little bit more about, but a great question, and and you're really going to tap into my uh, ten years old of education to go back and see if I remember some of the actual historical causes they talk about. But it's a very complex reason if you really think about it, and you go back and you look at history, and you look at you know, where people had resources and what they had to do to obtain resources. There was a limited money and, and power throughout history has been very isolated to certain individuals. You know, we look at some of the, the horrible things that have happened throughout world history. And oftentimes it's because there's been a, a need to control resources, to control people, to build on the backs of slaves. You know, many civilizations have been built on the backs of slaves. Even our own United States history has been marred by that fact. So you you look at that's one component is that for time there was a a control issue. You know, that's just how people inherently grew up. That's what they knew. That's what they were exposed to. And then you look at a couple of other influences like the military. A lot of our leadership training throughout time has come from military things, from conquests and and different warfare over the years and in military there's a need, a necessity to have a top-down leadership because you don't need people questioning in a moment because it can actually cost them their lives. And so there's a lot of good research and strategic studies that talk about why leadership in the military is the way it is. And, you know, sometimes I agree with it, sometimes I don't, but the history of it is pretty sure is that we get a lot of our leadership training from that hierarchical military leadership, because that's where, you know, going back deep into history, you look at you know, naval influence. I'm a mariner. I, I love Navy history, but we know more about Navy history thousands of years ago than we know about, you know, many countries because we, you know, spread over time and we have these traditions that have carried forward. And a lot of those traditions are based in leadership. So that's, you know, you have all these different factors. And then you look at the industrial revolution. So you had, this is a major, I think, influence into some of the shift in the paradigm, you know, that started back, you know, hundred years ago, you have this this massive rural workforce coming to an urban center to do the work. And so you then start injecting different ideas into the corporation. And so over time, that's kind of melted and you start, and then you start to give more and more people a seat at the table and you start to talk about ideas and we start to be see, well, there's not just one way to do this. There's might be other ways. And so 
people start to see the benefits of diversity and they start to see how others can work together and that there might, you know, the way we've always done it, there might be some good in it, but there might be some ways we can improve upon it. And then over time, as we've kind of become more and more enriched or comfortable in our lifestyle, people just aren't willing to put up with, you know, bad leadership because they don't necessarily have to anymore. And so that fact in and of itself helped constitute some change in it too. And I think there's a lot more factors, but those are kind of the thoughts that came to my mind as we talked about it. And so you start to look at, you know, all these cultural influence, you talked about the Venn diagram and where they intersect. I think, you know, widening that circle, making those intersections overlap more often with different types of people. And also recognizing that sometimes, and quite often, there's some great studies out there right now that show that organizations can actually even make more money when they take better care of their people. Then now the the people that have the resources start to see, well, I'm not necessarily losing resources. I'm not losing my, my monetary value and I'm making people happier. So they look at different ways to do it. And so there's different incentives. I think there's different people who are motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by that altruism, by getting that dopamine rush you talked about. Some people are motivated by control and power and, you know, as many different motivations as there are, there are different people and different leaders, but I think that that's my. So you're a mariner, huh? Not a Seattle mariner. Oh, because but, I, I'm yeah. a, I'm a King Griffey <laughs> Jr. fan myself. I am as well. My neighbor, my neighbor sold him his BMW. So I have a signed oh, King Griffey nice. Jr. card. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got a question. I got a question for you about that then. Um, uh, I'm glad that's where society's going. I look back and if you look at rural communities that survived the industrial revolution, those communities operate off of an ecology where each individual in this area will have a duty and a role. One no greater than the other, you know, the, you know, the farmer, the baker, the butcher, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, I, I'd love to say this is some sort of uh, capitalism problem, but it isn't because when you go look at the same rural farming communities in Russia, you actually, and you have like a state owned farm and you start instituting that top down leadership model, people only put output the amount of wheat that they're required to you know, as opposed to when they have their own sense of autonomy, they'll output uh, to the best of their ability. You know, that's a long way to get to where I was trying to get. And that's when you inject that top-down leadership, often it cuts your, cuts your company off at the knees. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I, that's why I'm so passionate about servant leadership. And I've just seen it over and over again in my military career and just throughout government and even in private industry is when you see that top-down leadership, you just, you do, you see this stifling of creativity, a stifling of growth. It just really limits what you're going to do. And I, I was really impressed with Ben Beckhart, who helped bring General Mills and flourish it here in Mexico. I met him in my travels here. And he talked about how in General Mills, they had gotten so complacent because they didn't want to buck the status quo, but then they stopped actually creating ways that they could keep their business growing because they wanted to continue to just focus on Walmart as their distributor. And so they started to, you know, they were getting so much revenue from Walmart and he kept his point was that's fine. Continue to build your revenue stream with Walmart, but you got to look at other places, but they'd become so limited in the way they thought that they were pushing out other ideas to grow the company. And I I think too often in Western culture, especially, I think you see a little bit different in some other cultures, but in Western culture, we, we seem to have this propensity to believe that if I'm getting something, 
it means you have to get less of something. And, right. and I don't know that that's a, a true law of the world. I don't know that that is a fact. I think we, we create that in our competitive nature and our, in our desire, and even somewhat in the way we run economics, not just capitalism. I mean, I think this an autocratic, autocratic government has some of these same influences, the way they control and manipulate their markets and their money to kind of create a competitive nature. I don't know that, that that's the end all be all answer. I, I think that one of the paradigm shifts we really need to make is this idea that there's a, a set pie. And if I take six of the eight slices, there's only two left. I think that we have to shift our paradigm to believe that, you know, that's, I- that's a huge problem though. The economy is not a pie and it's going to what you're saying. You know, you're not, t- if you want three pieces of pie, it doesn't have to be a world where you're taking two pieces away from two other people. It can be a model where you're deciding I'll be the baker for the pie. Why don't you, George, go over there and get the, uh, the blueberries, you know, why don't you Sally go over there and, you know, create the lattice top for, for the pie, you know, and we can all then have one pie for each of us. And it'll be Uh much greater than pieces of one pie. It'll be a whole pie. That's, that's how the car industry worked. Ford put out there the, uh, the, the manufacturing model competitors did so as well. That didn't mean he was selling any fewer model T's. He actually sold a ton of model T's but other people were selling as well. The whole, there's only a couple pieces of the pie. You know, I, I, I hate it when people go there because it doesn't have to be that way. You as a mariner know that, you know, rising tides float all, but lifts all boats. Right. So it's, um, there's a different way to do it. Yeah. What a great analogy. I love it when people throw nautical analogies into the conversation. <laughs> so thanks for that. And, uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. And when I was talking to Shanna Farmer in the, the, Last episode I released, she's a CEO for United Way in Pueblo County in Colorado. And she talked about how they're focused. They've learned from the pandemic. They've really recognized that there's just so many needs out there. They're never going to solve them all. But if they work on building capacity from organizations, from individuals, they can actually create more resources to solve more of the problems. So it's the whole you know, give a man a fish, you feed him up for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime, right? It's the whole same thing, right? If we if we focus more, and I, this is what I love about servant leadership is because it's not about just making the company successful. It's about making everyone in that organization successful. And when we do that, we expand capacity. When we expand capacity, everyone wins. I agree. I want to go back one conversation. I was, I was talking about uh, top-down leadership and that the lowest level employee only does enough to not get fired, right? I have a question about what happens when the boss doesn't become God. What happens when the product becomes God? What happens to to the lowest level employees? I mean, I've worked at corporations my whole life. I, I kind of feel like, well, I'm just trying to make someone else a bunch of shares. You know, I'm trying to make their shares of stock more. A person like me who likes to help people, if I'm being told that the product is more important than the people, now I've lost my ability to get my reward, get my social currency out of helping people when the product deems that my support of people is not as important as the product. I don't think I clearly stated that. I hope you got what I what I meant. Um, I, I was just wondering, you know, does that, have you studied that in your servant leadership and what, what, 
I don't know that I've studied, I don't know that I've read any research on it. So I'm not going to quote research, but I do have some personal feelings about it. I think first and foremost, if your culture is people oriented and you then place the product above the people, you're going to ruin your organization. People are going to see through that false narrative. They're going to, they're going to see your lack of credibility in your culture, and they're going to either leave or they're going to work less. They're not going to have the internal motivation to drive themselves. And then you're going to need more micromanagement. You're going to need more autocratic leadership. You're going to need more top-down leadership. And so when you're not allowing people to empower themselves or feel motivated, you naturally have to do these things that create a top-down leadership environment. So you almost are, it will, in my opinion, this is once again, my opinion, but you'll shift yourself away from people oriented to a more hierarchical approach because of necessity, because people will stop believing in the organization. Now, if your culture is about making money and serving the product, then I think it will still happen that same way, just to less of a degree, because I think you'll, you'll invite a different type of person that has a different motivation but I really truly believe that the principles of servant leadership resonate with most people. And most people want to be empowered. They want to believe in the, what they're doing. They want to see themselves in their work. They want, you know, we spend a majority of our waking hours doing what we work for. We don't want to just punch a clock, do a ticket, pass the time. Too often that's what we do, but that's not what we want. And so when we do that, when we make the product you know, that doesn't feel good and for most people. And so when we do that, we stop feeling good about going to work. And when we don't feel good, we don't work as hard. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Uh, when you take a look at your day is separated into thirds, right? There's eight hours of, you know, being unconscious. There's eight hours of sitting at your desk. And then there's eight hours that you get back, you know, for, things that you need to do in your life or just relaxation. And if you're just going to take a third of that and take it from being something that you're proud of to becoming in service of a product or a boss or whatever. Yeah. That's a, that's a third of your day, five days a week that just is taken from you. <laughs> it's, and it doesn't seem fair. And, you know, with these, with these ideas of servant leadership, and I've seen some of it in, in application, and it seems, my God, you're giving time back to me is what you're giving me. And time is valuable, right? They say time is money, but time is also your health. It's also your desire. It's also your, you know, your sense of worth. And that's something that I've, that I've noticed in servant leadership since I've talked to you about it, because I see it in my daily work as well. There's semblances of it being enacted. We're trying to reduce what we're seeing down to talking points with many people resigning or leaving their organization. And we're trying to come up with simple reasons for this, you know, and what talking to some people that have done a lot of reading and studying and really the leaders that I respect, they've pointed out that, you know, the, the pandemic didn't change our business a lot. It changed it a little, but it didn't change how we do business a lot. But what it did is it opened people's eyes to what their time means to them. And so now they're looking and they're like, now they're really looking at these bad leaders and they're, they're like, I don't want to work for this person anymore or these companies. I don't want to sell this widget anymore. It means nothing to me. My family does, my friends, you know, those eight hours that they're that giving back to you, 
you know, they, over time, they become six hours, maybe four hours, depending on how needy your organization is. And people were like, enough, enough. If I don't believe in it, I'm going to do something else. Well, heck, think about this as a sidebar to that. I got 21 days of my life back for the last two years. So that's 42 days, 42 days by not driving to work. And, you know, when we all go to work, none of us get paid for the time you're sitting in traffic, (laughs) you know, and if I go into the thirds, I mean, just think about that. Like my commute's an hour, almost an hour. And that's two hours, five days a week that I'm giving away, you know, in service of a product or a job or, you know, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, I just go back to, it's not fair. And I think you're right. I think during the pandemic, we all realize that and people are demanding some time back, you know, it's, 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 that's a good thing. That's, you know, pandemic's a bad thing, but that result is a good thing. I think. I, I agree. And, and unfortunately too many high level leaders are trying to go back to what they deem as normal or whatever that term means, which I hate it when people say new normal or back to normal. You used a term earlier, control. Yes. And so well, it, it is, it's, it's a form of control. Normal is a relative term. And too often we treat it like normal is a universal term. It's not, it's a relative term. And so when we look at these things, we're not acknowledging how people are feeling. We're not acknowledging who they are, what they're bringing to the table. And people are rejecting that lack of acknowledgement at the moment. And if leaders don't start to recognize it, they're going to, they're going to hurt their companies. They're going to hurt their bottom line and they'll hopefully lose their leadership position if that happens, but sometimes they don't. And then it, it just becomes a bad situation. And some people feel that they can't leave those situations because they have mortgages or kids or obligations. And, you know, that's unfortunate and ideally in a, a utopian universe, we would help people realize the damage they're doing to those people. And the only comment I would like to add on top of that is if you are losing 42 days of your commuting, I'll give some of it back to you by telling you to listen to Abraham's podcast or my <laughs> podcast, and then you'll get some of that time back. But yeah. I, <laughs> I understand your point completely. And that's uh, that's uh, seattlesportsunion.com. Uh, we do a podcast once a week. As well, uh, you'll see us at the Everett Aquasox minor league baseball team every Friday in the parking lot. So if you're in Everett and you want to come say hi, come visit us in the uh, south parking lot under the blue tent. I'm here to talk to Abraham about sports. (laughs) Yeah. And actually I kind of mentioned to Abraham, we're talking about ideas. We want to talk about how powerful sports can be. I sports for me personally, it helped me probably stay out of prison. It really helped me find a way to harness passion in a appropriate way. It find, it helped me find a way to be build somewhat of leadership in a positive manner when I lacked so many good examples in my life. So I, I'm a big fan of sports and what they can do. Uh, you know, there's obviously a bad side of sports like anything else, but I think that comes with people more than it does the, the way sports are organized. And I was thinking so much about how so many of us, even people that don't necessarily like sports as much as me and Abraham, because we're both pretty big junkies, <laughs> but people that don't like them as much as they're still motivated by feel good sports stories of these stories of teams that overcame incredible odds or these, you know, the miracle on ice, the remember the Titans that, you know, unified a community and showed us some of our own biases beyond just what they did on the field. You know, these stories are so powerful, but I think if you look deeper at them, they're going to show you some amazing leaders and even often servant leaders, people who really care 
about the people that help them overcome what their what they think their own barriers are. How do you think yeah. sports plays into servant leadership? <laughs> Boy, um, I had the opportunity to to interview the um, last three Aquasox. That's the local uh, minor league baseball team here managers, and they actually this new environment that Jerry Depoto, the general manager of the Seattle Mariners, has instituted is a servant leadership environment. It really is. And I hope you can get him on your podcast. That'd be awesome. Because every single manager that I speak to, they speak about their athletes, not as commodities, not as foot soldiers, not as anything other than a person to support. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier. You know, they, they get a genuine thrill of being able to give everything they can to somebody, supply them with nutrition that they need, supply them with tips on how to hit the baseball, supply them with, you know, better techniques, you know, for, for running the bases, that kind of thing, better techniques for pitching. And you can see it in the pride they have for players who advance to the next level and even pride in players who don't advance. I did not expect this because I, uh, you're talking about some of the bad things about sports. Um, I, I have been on teams where you have a bully as a head coach. And they care more about winning. And here we go again with the top down, you know, the top down philosophy versus, you know, servant leadership, those, those type of coaches, when there's money involved, that's how, that's how they get to stay, you know, coaches. When you start taking that, that money part out, you start getting to people who want to help. And like I said, not just help the people who are going to go to the next level, but help the people who, you know, baseball might not be, you know, part of their life. For me, you're talking about sports keeping you out of trouble. For me, I was failing high school when sophomore year, I was going to, I was going to flunk out. I flunked a couple classes. <laughs> um, I flunked English and I went and got a degree in it. But anyway, the, <laughs> one of the things that helped me was getting into wrestling, getting a very good coach who taught me about discipline. I was not the best wrestler. I was not even, I made varsity by accident because nobody else was in the weight class and didn't have a very, I, I didn't have a very good record, but I had a very good experience because I was elevated from an area where I had no sense of worth or value uh, and got placed into an environment with a person who said, yes, you can, you can do what you want to, you know, do. And you just have to, you know, set yourself up with goals, set yourself up with a narrative that you are good enough and set yourself up, you know, for uh, success by working with others. Big problem. Big problem in high school is I didn't work with others. I was not the kind of person that wanted to help others. I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to not talk to anybody. And thus I didn't pay attention to what teachers had to tell me. So I had some crummy teachers, but I'm sure I had some teachers that tried to get through me and I just wouldn't listen. And, um, it, it helps, it helps when you get one of those good coaches. I didn't go, you know, to the Olympics. I didn't go to WWF, you know, I, I didn't make a career out of athletics, but I definitely got out of this weird funk that I was in by being involved in that kind of community. I started enjoying other communities too, you know, other, I started enjoying things like chess club, started enjoying things like Spanish club, started enjoying, you know, other areas that I had not, I'd been too afraid to you know, go into and enjoy. It's weird how somebody can teach you like that coach did. If they can teach you something about self-worth, you can flip things around right quick. Happened to me. Yeah, that's a powerful story. And, you know, that's, I think, 
true evidence of a servant leader is they're often doing more in a leadership capacity than they realize they are. Like that coach probably, he might've thought, man, my wrestling team's not doing so good. Not knowing that he was empowering people to go on to great careers, empowering others to do what he or she thought they couldn't, you know, building that self-confidence is such a powerful thing. And going back to the kind of the bully coach atmosphere, it's interesting because when you lose that motivation of helping others, of looking at holistically at your organization, whatever it may be, and the people within it, a lot of times you start to get afraid and you're motivated by fear, you know, in, in the coach's case, they're afraid that they might lose games and lose their nice salary or get fired or, and there's a lot of pressure. So I know that fear is a very real thing because of that pressure, but that's no different than any other organization in a lot of regards. We all feel differing pressures from our employers, from our families, from whatever. And when we allow those pressures to become primary, they take our eye off the prize, off the people around us. And when we empower servant leadership, when we, like your coach, when we don't necessarily worry about, are we winning our matches, but am I building wrestlers? Yeah. Everything takes care of itself. And we find that we do more than we thought possible. And I think that's where those, why those feel good stories, those sports stories mean so much to us, because I truly believe within every person lies the ability to surpass their own limitations. Yeah. But, but too often we, we succumb to the pressure. You know, it's interesting. You and I read an article, can't remember what it was called. It was for our doctorate program. And it spoke about a track coach, I think. And the track coach had very good athletes and then just some bench warmers, right? And they went ahead and used all their resources, time, you know, effort, location, you know, they spent all these resources on making the, the better athletes nominally better and just ignoring the bench warmers. And I just thought how, like, well, how horrific is that at a high school level? I mean, this isn't professionals, you know, professionals, once you start getting paid, we're talking about a different conversation altogether. Um, but even then, you know, like, actually, no, it's not a different, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to take that back. It's not a different conversation. Even if you're getting paid, you should put value into the, into the people who aren't at the highest levels, because if you can exponentially increase their ability, then all of a sudden you don't have a bench warmer. You have a solid role player. And, you know, I just kind of think, I I say that because I was thinking about the 1990, you know, 1990s bulls and just spent all your effort and time Had Phil Jackson spent it all on Michael Jordan. How much better was Michael Jordan going to get from the greatest to uh, what? Maybe he makes one more free throw a game. Uh, (laughs) But Phil Jackson actually spent a lot of his time, you know, on the players at the end of the bench because when it was time for them to come in, you know, if he can exponentially make somebody like Paxton better, or if he can make, you know, Rodman more focused, Wennington uh, not foul out. I mean, like if he can help those players in support of Jordan, which he did, that's how you win six championships. That's absolutely true. And when we focus on the whole team, the whole team rises together because what those athletes often lack in skill they probably make up for an heart more often than not because they've had to work harder their whole lives. A gifted athlete, when you, now, when you reach the highest levels of competition, a gifted athletes, very, very competitive as well. And they're very driven because that's the only way you get to those highest levels of all sports, but everybody else, that's not that 1% of gifted athletes. It's incredibly driven. 
if you're gifted, oftentimes you don't necessarily work as hard. And that's why we see so many gifted athletes not cut it in the professional level because they just don't have the work ethic. Keith, but they might also have, you know, a coach or they might have an environment where they're not valued and nobody's there to tell them, you know, Hey buddy, you gotta, you gotta pick it up. Here's a way to do it. Here's another thing. Uh, because hope solo United States, uh, women's soccer team goalie for many, many years, she just got arrested again for uh, drunk driving. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, sometimes the help isn't in, you know, how do you kick the ball better or how do you, you know, throw the ball further? It can also be like, what, is everything okay in your life? You know, in your home life, are you doing okay? You know, I think that's, that's a question in servant leadership that comes up. And I just want to frame that question, frame that as a question to you. That is a part of it, right? I really think it is. I was thinking about a story for those that you don't know, and maybe this is too oversharing, but I was expelled from high school as a sophomore. And so my whole junior year, I had to work extra hard to get back into the good graces of my high school. And so I stopped playing all sports my junior year. Well, when I came back my senior year and wanted to play all the sports, I played basketball, football, baseball again, only the basketball coach would take me back because I made some major mistakes in my life. But that basketball coach took me back. And I think partly because of me and because I'm one of those players, that's not exceptionally gifted, but I will work harder than everybody else. And I really am driven and passionate and very competitive. So I think he wanted that on the team. But more than that, one of my best friends, and I won't mention him by name because I don't want to share his story too much, but he was struggling in his life at that point. And I think the coach knew that we were close to really kind of show him some of the changes I've made in my life. He didn't, some of those things weren't implicitly stated, but there was some times where it was definitely noted that my role was more than just playing on the team, but looking after some of those teammates who had struggled the same way I struggled. They just hadn't found a way out of it yet. Boy, that was actually probably your first introduction then to being a servant leader because you were kind of a leader on that team then. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I played very little on my high school basketball team, my senior year, and I got the coach's MVP award nice. that year. And, and, and it was because of things like that, because I did those things. I really worked with people and we had some talented, talented basketball players on that team, but there was too much selfishness and we couldn't get out of our own way. And we probably would have gone far in the playoffs if we would have been able to do even more than what we did do. But that coach recognized that they needed some leadership to get it in front of that talent because the talent was going in diverse ways. And so, although it wasn't completely successful, I think now looking back on it, I see what that coach was trying to do to help those players get out of their own way a little bit. Well, I mean, you can even take successes, you know, if he helped turn you around and you helped turn another person around, it connects right back to where we started with this podcast in, you know, paying it forward. Yeah. And I want to leave us with our challenge, but I'll leave one thought before I leave us with a challenge. Actually, it's interesting how life goes in these Venn diagrams, as you mentioned, because when I was at Gonzaga University, one of my classmates was a fellow teacher who worked with our basketball coach. And so I, we talked in our class together at Gonzaga and he was like, and so I asked him if coach Bollinger was still there. And he said, yes. And I told him how he changed my life. Like him allowing me to be on that basketball team changed the projection of my life because it gave, like you said, someone believed in me. And not only that rewarded me for my success off the court, not my success on the court. And he went back and talked to coach Bollinger about it and came, then reported, he came back to me and said that that was one of his most prized decisions was to put me on that team. That's cool. 
That's really and cool. so, you know, so it's, it's an interesting how life works. And with that thought, I want to leave everyone with the, the challenge for this episode. And that's to really take stock of the people around you. Are you allowing them to be themselves or are you holding them back or trying to force them into a, a vision of what you think they are? Are you empowering them to be the best person on and off the field, on and off the court to really motivate you and build your organization? Or are you holding them back? Really take stock on the people around you and whether you're leading them or just working for them, we all influence the people around us. So take stock on that. Well, Abraham, any final thoughts to wrap us up before we close up today? I just want to say, come check out, if you like sports and you're in the Seattle area, or even if you're not in the Seattle area, you still like sports, go ahead and check out my website. That's seattlesportsunion.com as well. Check me out on socials such as at Seattle Sports U on Twitter, Seattle Sports Union on Facebook. We have lots of great guests. Again, if you're in the Seattle area, you may recognize names like Art Teal or Dave Grosby. You know, uh, we have a lot of guests uh, a lot of athletes uh, coming up here, especially with the Everdock Sox. And uh, yeah, check check that out. And then also, like Keith said, help people out around you. It all comes around back to you. And you never know if you're that, you know, if you're that coach, you know, picking up a kid that flunked out of school or if you're picking up a kid who gets into fight, way too many fights like I did. You might be able to redirect their energy and and change the trajectory of their life. And it and every little, every little win like that makes our society, makes our, makes our world a better place. So it does, it doesn't have to be anything major. I mean, it even can just be, you know, how are you doing today? You know, are you, you look a little bummed, you know, what's, uh, what's, what's bugging you, that kind of thing. Even stuff like that can, can help out. And like he said, you know, try not to hold other people to your perfections of uh, your ideas of perfections. That person has a different life experience than you do. And treasure that and love that because that is something that can make you a better person by staying and remaining and helping that particular friend. Totally agree. Thanks so much, Abraham. And just like to always give a vote of credibility to the guests, uh, all the things you heard Abraham talk about today, he does. He lives those things. He really, truly looks for ways to help all the people around him. I've witnessed it over and over again, even when people don't want to help an individual for whatever reason, he's always quick to jump in and help and provide assistance and to always look for ways to lift people up. And I really, I've really admired about that about him and appreciated him. And as I'm wrapping up, I'll say one final thing about him. He's got a knack for knowing when people need help. And that's an important feature too, because I was at a low point with my the podcast at first, and I was, didn't know if I wanted to continue it beyond the school project. And he just seemed to know that I was at a low point and he reached out and lifted me up. And so I think when you really pay attention to the people around you, you can know when the right moment is to buoy them up, to lift them. And that's just as important as providing help. Well, that's one of your 10 points, right? That 10 points of uh, servant leadership is listening. Yep, it is. It's an important one. All right. Well, thanks, Abraham. I really loved having you and so grateful. And thanks everyone for listening. I really do appreciate all the listener support. I appreciate the comments I get from you. So if you have comments, please send them to me. It really encourages me as well. And also if you have guests that you think would be good, please send me names or messages about them. And if you think you'd be good to talk about some stuff, I would love to have you if I haven't reached out to you already. And um, I plan to get to everyone I know at some point. So you might as well jump it to the head of the line and let me know yourself. 
So thanks again for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership and have a wonderful day.